all our representation was relying on butterflies. Mm -hmm. And it was all about butterflies. And you had butterflies everywhere. And I showed them um, mood films with butterfly. And I was using butterfly migration footage with millions of butterflies. And I saw that they weren't reacting well. But I kept on going. And I was telling them, because your product is like the butterfly in beauty and blah, blah, blah. Talking 30 minutes about butterflies. And in the end, they look at me and say, in our culture, <laughs> butterflies are ugly. They're like cockroaches. Welcome to Creative Vengeance. I'm your host, Anne Stach, and this is episode number 10. My guest this time is Alicia Botado. She's a creative director at Antony in Berlin, the agency founded for Mercedes a few years ago. And yeah, the episode was supposed to be released a bit earlier, but the episode was almost lost. I think my audio recorder somehow fried the SD card. So the recording had about 200 moments with a horrible loud sound on it. And then I luckily realized every time I copy the audio file from the SD card onto the computer, the parts that are damaged are at slightly different positions on the timeline. So I was able to edit together a version that is working from multiple copies. And in the end, there were just two or three moments in the episode where maybe half a second is missing. I think you won't realize that. If anybody realizes, let me know and you can win a free 32 gigabyte SD card. I have one that I don't need anymore for sure. Yeah, check out the show notes on creativevengeance.com. I put a link to Alicia's website there and also some of the campaigns that we mention throughout the episode. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about it or share it on social media. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify. Thanks so much for listening. Here is Alicia Butado. Today is March the 15th, 2020. We are in Berlin in Alicia's apartment and Fight's apartment. Welcome. Thank you for taking the time. How are you? I'm good. I don't have coronavirus yet, so I'm feeling pretty good. Okay, but you are Italian, right? Or you grew up in Italy at least? I am Italian, yes. So you are probably more affected by Corona already than most people in Germany. Yes, I have been following what has been happening in my country for the past weeks, and it's pretty scary. Yeah, do you have friends and family members who are directly affected yet? or No, they're not. But for example, my grandma, she is in a sort of... A home for elderly people and they're on lockdown so no one yeah. can go and visit so this is uh, affecting my family already and lots of friends of mine they're just in quarantine the whole day yeah. so. usually the podcasts are not too much uh, relying on the date when they were recorded but today is march 15th and i will probably release it on april 10th so the world will look different regarding corona in three weeks so Whatever we are saying right now about Corona might uh, yeah, look completely different in three weeks. So do you already feel the effects of the virus on the ad industry or what did people, what did your friends tell you working in agencies? Well, I think lots of people had to change the way they're working. Lots of people are working from home 
I think it's not that difficult in most of the cases and most of the people in advertising agencies work from their laptops anyway, so um, the work is not that disrupted. Obviously, we will need to see what happens on an economic level also for our clients and how this is going to impact future campaigns and spendings and things like that. But this is, I think, still too soon to see now. Yes, definitely. Right now, I'm working on a client. And Friday, I was in the home office and tried to come up with ideas. And on the news, I read that this client yeah, is struggling financially. So... We all don't know if the clients that we work for are still going to be needing advertising in, yeah. in the months or so. But yeah, what you just said about the home working and working from remotely with a laptop, I think that's probably the chance that people are forced to do it like that and will learn for the future that it really can work. Because I think especially people who have been in the business for longer, they have a hard time believing that this, this yeah. works. I'm very curious to see on a general level how this emergency right now is going to impact us as a society. But I think when it comes to the way we work, maybe it's also an opportunity to see how many things we can accomplish while not being in the same place. And personally, I've been taking so many flights just to do a two-hour presentation yeah. and then coming back in the evening. And maybe for the future, this is not going to be as necessary as it is now. Yeah, and every agency I've been to, most of the time the video conference does not work. So maybe now they need to figure out how to really use this technology. But yeah, another thing is, yeah, the world will most likely look different when this is over. So the things we talk about in our campaigns, there might be different on new topics. So did you already spend time thinking about that? I wonder if... As we're going through a very difficult time right now, maybe in the next couple of months, we will try to create advertising that is more lighthearted, that is maybe brings a little more joy or optimism. You know, when, when countries have tough times, you see that the movies that people like to watch more are, for example, superhero movies, because okay. you, you can escape your real life. So maybe this is going to impact uh, our job as well. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I hope, at least I hope that people will move closer together after they went through this together. Yeah. And yesterday I saw on the news that people were singing on the balconies in Italy. Yes. I think this is quite a paradox. On, on one hand, I, I think it's beautiful and emotional and I've seen the videos and they're all on their balconies and they're, uh, and they're singing and that's beautiful. But isn't it also curious that they feel... Uh, even more patriotic right now, even though this is a global pandemic. So uh, do we, they? I didn't know that. Yes, they were they were singing the national hymn. Ah, okay. Yeah. I did not click the video because I try not to watch too too much news nowadays because sitting at home watching the news does not feel good. No, it doesn't. So yeah, let's switch to another topic. You studied anthropo. This is a tongue twister anthropology how did that happen and how did you then get into advertising so anthropology happened randomly and advertising happened random happened randomly as well um, after high school i had no clue at all what i want to study but i started reading about anthropology and somehow it sounded interesting and it's about studying people how they 
behave, how culture, religions work, and the social behavior of, um, of communities, of human communities. And I thought it was really interesting. So I started studying it, and I loved it. Uh, it was, I think, one of the most interesting things I'd done in, in my life. Somehow, I, I had this romantic idea that it was gonna, I don't know, go somewhere and find a tribe that uh, had no influence of Western culture and spend months with them because in anthropology you do this thing which is called um, observant participation. So you actually live with the people you're studying. Okay. And you do everything that they're doing. So you eat what they eat, you participate in their, I don't know, religious rituals, you do that kind of stuff. Um, and then... I did an internship at an advertising agency, and the dream changed. <laughs> and um, yeah, well, I stayed there. I didn't go back to do my master's degree as I was planning originally. Uh, so you almost finished, but then you... No, I did, I did my three years degree, Okay, yeah. but okay. I wanted to continue because I loved it. I thought this is what I'm going to do with my life. But in between, before starting my master's, I had this three months free time. And I, because I didn't want to stay at home doing nothing, so I just took this random internship at an advertising agency, knowing nothing about advertising, and I loved it. And I, why did you do the internship? You knew somebody, or somebody said, "Hey, check this out." Yeah, I, I. Someone told me, you know, why don't you try it? I think you could be a good copywriter because okay. I've, I, I've always been writing since I was a child, and I gave it a try, and well, it was love at first sight. Cool. So. Are there any parallels that you see between anthropology and advertising? I think it's all about humans, right? It's about people. So the, the core is the same. Anthropology studies people, and with advertising, you want to entertain, inform, or create awareness, and in best case, sell them something. Um, but in the end, it's all about people. So Yeah, I thought that if you are really trained or generally have the talent to somehow observe people and realize uh, yeah, what, what moves them and then it's also probably a good starting point for telling them a story that they like or that they're interested in. Yes, or to find an insight. I, I think on yes. a, maybe not on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, I use many anthropologic techniques to uh, come up with concepts or to review them. So I think this is oh, okay. definitely something that is still influencing me today. Yeah. The agency that you did your internship at, was that your first agency also? Yes, that was McCann in Rome. Um, it was an agency with very talented and established and senior creatives, especially writers. And I was very lucky because of them, they've been incredibly generous with me. And, you know, I had no clue. I didn't know how to write a headline. I didn't know what anything was. And they spent lots of time teaching me and giving me feedback and helping me grow. So that was fantastic. It was like I was in an agency and all these great writers were spending their time teaching me how to do the job. So I'm very grateful for that. Great. And how many years did you spend there? I spent three years there. It was not a big agency. We were maybe 50 people. So along being able to work with this very experienced creatives, I also had the opportunity right from the start to have a client that I was handling. So there was this bank account and that became my account. So I started doing you know, posters for them and leaflets, talking about loans and that sort of stuff. And it was really, really good to learn the job. 50 people is probably really good size because that's the size where a community works 
as uh, yeah one I don't know what the accurate word is but for an organization 50 people works when it gets bigger and that's what agencies also do then you need different units so yes. it's probably a really great size to start it was with. a great size um, everyone knew everyone you could tell you you knew um, everyone's name and if they had kids or stuff like that plus in Italy, we are, I think, a little bit more social than, okay. for example, my experience here in Germany. So uh, you used to spend a lot of time together. And 50 people is, um, it, it, was a, it was a great opportunity. I was also starting with two other interns. And so we were sort of the, the young ones in the agency and we became very close friends. So it's been a really good time there. Was that with the other interns, was it competitive or were you supporting each other? We were definitely supporting each other. We were doing so many things together, um, side projects, or we were um, inviting ourselves to pitches. Cool. Yeah. So uh, it, it was great because we were passionate, we were hungry, we had lots of free time. You know, you don't have a family or stuff like that. So um, it was great to have people that had your same interest and that were willing to you know, spend nights in the agency and work just because we had so much fun together. Great. And your next agency was DDB Berlin then? or Yes. So I spent three years at McCann in Rome. And, you know, Italy wasn't going through the best time. I mean, it looks like my country is facing lots of issues in the past okay. years. But um, there had been the financial crisis. So obviously, advertising spending weren't going down. And I always had the wish to work on international clients. Unfortunately, there aren't many that are based out of Italy, especially, what, eight or nine years ago. So I started looking for jobs somewhere else. And I spoke German, so I thought maybe I should give it a try in Germany. Although I never have worked in German before. I never wrote a German headline before or an English headline. So it was quite a risky thing to do. Um, I said let's try and I got this job offer from DDB in Berlin where I got hired as a writer for Bunte the gossip oh, magazine really? yes didn't know they had a client they had a client at the time and obviously I was coming from Italy and I had no clue who all these German celebrities were so I spent my first weeks at DDB Berlin reading the past um, two years of Bunte and trying to understand who is Barbara Schöneberger, who is Sylvie Mais, trying to make sense of all these celebrity universe. But that's a good introduction to the German society. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was a crash course in Germany. Society, yeah. It was pretty useful. You, you, I read on your CV that you went to a German school in Italy, is that I right? I did, yes. So I assume one of your parents is German or? No, no oh. one in my family speaks a word of German. Oh, wow. But they wanted me to grow up speaking another language and they thought that the German school might be a good choice. And so they sent me there and you have to consider in the 80s, um, Germany was really trying to grow a little bit, I think, their cultural influence. A little bit like, you know, the Goethe-Institut. Yeah. And they have also the, all these Deutsche Schulen yeah. everywhere in the world. I went to a German school in Brussels for two years. Yeah, yeah. And it's great. And you have all these teachers coming from Germany and spending a couple years abroad. Yeah. 
So it was pretty much like going to a German school where everyone speaks German and Italian was considered a foreign language somehow. So it was a pretty interesting experience. So there were a lot of kids from diplomats and um, army people or? Some of them, most had maybe a German parent and an Italian parent. Okay. And then there were the odd ones that were just 100% Italian. Yeah. How interesting. Now I, now I get it. <laughs> But yeah, like you already said, writing a German headline is something else than writing a German test at school. So I was so slow at the beginning, especially when, when I started at DDB. I was working a little bit on Bunte in German and then I was trying to work on other clients in English. And I was so slow. It took me hours I was very scared that like, I was never going to get any quicker than that. So, but it but took just you, a little bit of time. Did you also work on English clients at DDB so that you could write English headlines? Yes, we were starting because we noticed that there were lots of international creatives in the Berlin office. So we started thinking, why not try to work on some international client and try to create to create a little more of an um, international hub here in Berlin. The agency was already working for Volkswagen internationally, but I wasn't in that unit. And we had the opportunity to start working on um, Deutsche Telekom, but European. Okay. And that was one of the first international clients, and that was a great opportunity. Okay, but I think to learn the language, and especially to write German headlines, it's really good that you could start with yeah. a tough one like... Yeah. But yeah. I have to be honest, I'm not a good copywriter in German. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, at Heimat in the last years, we had more and more English copywriters, also because of that uh, car client the agency had. But when that car client was gone, there it was really tough for people who don't speak German to work on German clients because one thing is the headlines, but to translate every presentation and every briefing, it's pretty tough. And yeah. um, so I now worked at Innotion for the last four months. Mm -hmm. Did you work with Gabriel and Ricardo? Yeah, of course. We met later on at DDB. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And they have only people from yeah all over the world, but almost nobody from Germany. Yeah. So that was really interesting for me to be there for the last four months and only work in English. And that's not my native language. Neither it is the native language of anybody working there, I guess. Or There's probably one or two people. And so there's no translations because the client gets every presentation in English, everybody writes English films, English headlines, and I, some, I mean, I'm an art director and not a copywriter, but I have the feeling it's a lot easier to write English headlines when this is not your first language than to write German headlines. Yes, when you, I this agree, 100%. Because it's a f really tricky language. Okay, so DDB was also where you created the Wi-Fi dogs, right? Yes, that was one of our, I think, most fun projects for uh, Deutsche Telekom. That's the first project you did that I noticed. And I also think it looks like a lot of fun and it's a crazy idea. So maybe you, you want to explain a bit the story behind this idea and how it came to life. Yeah, so it was, I think, 2014 or 15, something like that. And it was about promoting this uh, pass to have internet abroad. Remember, it was the time that when you were traveling and you were trying to use your smartphone that you were getting these crazy bills. So people were mostly staying inside and trying to find a Wi-Fi they could use. And that was exactly the insight that we found. So 
The idea was inventing this guy who was called Jose, and he had this fantastic tourist business. He was renting Wi-Fi sniffing dogs to tourists. And we created a documentary around it. We created also a website so you could actually go on Jose's website and see all the dogs. And um, it, was, it was a lot of fun to work on that. And the whole experience, the whole production experience, casting Jose, who was actually um, not an actor. He was casted on the street in Los Angeles. Never acted a day in his life. And then they just flew him to Barcelona where we were shooting. And it was his first sex experience. So it was, um, well, yeah, it, it was a great time. And I've, if, I don't know if I remember that correctly, but I think when I saw it the first time, the first seconds, I thought, is this real? And then because I'm in advertising as well, mm. I pretty soon thought, okay, but it's, it's a really fun yeah. documentary. But how many people actually believe that this was for real? I don't think that many if they watched until the end. Um, yeah, of course not. Obviously, the point was to intrigue them a little bit because yes it sounded crazy but not that crazy i mean you've There's heard a lot of truth in it yeah you've heard crazier things and it is true everyone could relate to the fact that when you're abroad you're looking for wi-fi so yes it was a weird business idea but it was based on a on a real life problem i think at that time i also worked on a telco brand swisscom together with malta mm -hmm. my old partner who connected us And it's true, people, we, we also thought about this, I don't know, problem that or the fact that people spend their vacation, uh, a lot of their vacation time running around looking for a cafe with Wi-Fi, yeah. free Wi-Fi, or even staying outside of the cafe with your phone or with your laptop. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. And how easy was it to convince the client about the idea? It took a little bit of time, but I think in the end they fell in love with it. And they let us, I think they gave us a lot of freedom also when it came to the execution. So the documentary was shot by Randy Kralman, which I think is a fantastic director, especially when it comes to humor. He is really good in conveying this weirdness and quirkiness of the story, never making it too slapstick. So I, I think his execution was... Um, made the whole thing even better. And yeah, I, I'm glad they gave us this opportunity and um, I think the client was very happy with the result. Cool. And do you think that crazy or weird ideas like that happen less nowadays than in 2015 maybe? Now everyone wants purpose, right? I think so, Everyone yeah. wants a Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I mean... I really like this funny stuff, but I have the feeling that uh, maybe it has gotten less. Yes, it might be true. Uh, if I think about Cannes this year, um, for example, I, I was in the outdoor jury in Cannes this year, and it was six days of watching Kay's videos. And what we noticed after a while is the heaviness that you felt, because each campaign was trying to face a problem, a social problem, and an environmental problem. So obviously these campaigns can be amazing, but they come with a certain gravitas to it, right? We, we sort of lost this lightheartedness mm. um, that some great campaigns of the past have. So maybe coronavirus uh, will help us maybe. find it yeah. again. And yeah, I think it was the year before when I thought, okay, if you're not do something for a higher purpose, 
you won't be able to win a gold medal at Cannes. So, but you, six days watching case films, that's what the outdoor jury looks like? Yeah, so the first day actually you are doing the sort of supermarket thing where you're just scanning print ads and everyone has the scans and you hear those beep, beep, beep. So that's the first day. And the second day you start watching the case films and on the third day you start with the discussion which is then also the most fun part and then you have the fourth, the fifth and the sixth day. Wow. And what was the, yeah, you said that was the most fun or most interesting part to talk to other people, I guess, from other yes. countries, other agencies. We still have a WhatsApp group and oh, we were still right there. It was fantastic meeting these people and having the opportunity to talk to them. And also, you know, you watch the best work of the world and you're sitting there with these great guys and you have hours to just talk about it. You, know, you have to leave your smartphone behind. That's so you're good. just focused 100% on it. It's a very intense experience. You, you are, after six days, you, you're really, really, really tired. But it's also a very fulfilling experience. So, but Anthony does not belong to any network, right? No, it's an independent agency. So were you less involved in the deal making than other people from other agencies? It was very freeing because I was not representing a network and I didn't have a work in the outdoor category. So which is the really best for me judge. yeah it's, it's the best setup to to judge i think i think most of the people even when they have their own work they are still able to be unbiased and to be really objective but sometimes you see that people obviously i mean we are human beings you know so obviously you know, uh, but in this case in Cannes, it was very i think it was very objective especially because can uh, knows that Part of its reputation relies on the judges being objective. So on the first day, you get a sort of brainwashing thing where they tell you uh, how to behave and that it's really, really important. And I think this is essential uh, in order to make these award shows relevant. Because, you know, if it's yeah. just me giving an award to you and you giving an award to me, it's just, why are we doing yeah. it? Yeah, let's see if Ken will be remote or live this year. Yeah, I was reading that they're still planning to go for June. Maybe they will move it to October. But for example, the Dubai oh. links, where actually I should have been in the jury in March, they had to cancel it, mm. and which is from the same organizers. ADC is also remote. Yeah, they just... Voting, right? Yes. Or judging. Yeah. Yes. I mean, ah. this is probably the smallest problem that we're yes, facing right now. Course, but it's interesting how everything gets disrupted. Yeah. yeah. And also, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so quick that it affects everybody. I mean, I know people who work in concert business or catering or even just doing the lights for the shows and everybody is just not having work anymore. Yeah. It's just from one day to another. Yeah. So and that is really scary. Especially scary, imagine yeah. you're, I don't know, uh, a freelance personal trainer or a yeah. hairdresser and no one is coming more into your shop yeah. i mean you still have to pay the rent it's uh yeah. this is um, a really difficult time I, I mean i'm most worried about my grandmother who's 90 years old but the other stuff i don't know will i hope we will move close together and come out of this stronger right so anthony was your second agency in berlin Yes. And you started right in the beginning when the agency was founded or when did you join? I joined, I think they, the agency was I've, one and a half years after, the, oh, okay. after they founded it. 
I spent four years at DDB. Mm -hmm. And then I was looking for something else. We did some Sony there. We did some eBay. But I think four years was a good time for me there. Yeah. And then I was looking for something different. And Anthony was interesting because it was a new agency and obviously because uh, Mercedes is such a great client. And I was very curious about doing cars because I never really did cars before. And the moment I arrived in Germany, everyone was telling me that, you know, cars, like automotive, it's the Champions League of advertising here. And it's a very, very specific thing. And not all creatives can do it. And I was like, okay, let's, let's give it a try. And um, it was great. I learned a lot. You know, I started doing cars. I had no background whatsoever in cars. Um, cars are also very um, heavy on art direction and an understanding of photography. So this is all stuff that I had to learn. Um, that, for example, reflections in the car bonnet are a very, mm -hmm. very big thing that you could discuss for 25 minutes. Yeah, it depends yes. a lot if it's for Volvo or for VW. Or, yeah. yeah. So it was great because um, I had the opportunity to dive into a new topic and learn all about it. And Mercedes is a fantastic brand. It's funny, my former team partner, Malte, who also joined Anthony, had never done car advertising before and he also said yeah i've never done it before and i told him yeah that's i think this is a really good thing because yes. car advertising can be so boring also yeah. especially to all the nerds who i mean if they're just satisfied with a beautiful car and a beautiful feet or with a new feature i mean i'm not interested in cars and so if you can get me to be interested in a car despite i'm not interested in cars then this is a really good thing and probably not being a car creative helps to yeah. make it more interesting to um, people who aren't car fans. Yeah, I think when they started the agency, they hired a lot of petrol heads, people who had lots of car experience, which is obviously very valuable. And then they started mixing it up. So now it's, let's say, half of the people are car experience and know everything about them and then you have people like Malta or myself and we come with a different perspective and I think the mix between the two is what makes it great so you need people who know how to do things but you let's say you need to know how to do things to do them differently yes yeah. yes I was five years at Heimat and the four or five years before I was freelancing and just because I had done one Audi job just for a month People said, oh yeah, Arne, he knows about cars. So they hired me as a freelancer for Mercedes and then for Mini. And I don't know, I think I worked for, most, worked for most of the German car brands as a freelancer because everybody said, yeah, Arne, he's a car guy. He has a lot of car stuff yeah, in yeah. his portfolio. Said, Once you become the car guy. That's, yeah. that's, I, I don't care about cars personally. You know, I bought one car in my life and this is 12 years old now. But so I, think, I don't have a car. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my car is just standing around here in Berlin. I drive it once a month. <laughs> so when you started at Anthony, it was an interesting setup. The agency was built just for this client. And they, if I remember correctly, they weren't even in the pitch because that agency wasn't around. Exactly. So they built from zero. Yes. And probably it's good that you didn't join on day one <laughs> because you uh, didn't have all the stress. Yes, I mean, it's still a very young agency, so, you know, 
there's still lots of to, to do and processes are not that in place, but um, they had to create this agency from scratch. So they had to hire, I think, 100 people wow. just to be able to support Mercedes because being the European hub, you know, we're doing everything for them. We're doing campaigns, but we're also doing product content. We're doing digital. We're doing really everything. Um, and it's very difficult to start an agency when you just take 100 people and bring them together. And these 100 people all have different backgrounds and different experiences and probably also a different idea of how an agency works. And this is, I think, the big challenge when you create an agency from scratch and when you don't have the luxury to grow organically. Because usually an agency, maybe you start with five people yeah. and then through time you, you turn it into 10, 15, 20. And in this case, they had to start with 100 people right from the beginning. And I think that's quite challenging um, on a, I think, more cultural level. What is the best way to run an agency in, from your perspective? What makes a great agency? What makes a great agency culture? That's the $100 million question. <laughs> well, what, what is your, what, maybe it's just, like you said, some people like it this way, some people like it another way. So Yeah, I, I recently read this book uh, written by the former, um, the former Netflix HR mm -hmm. boss. And she explains the culture at Netflix, which sounds pretty interesting to me. Uh, it's a culture of freedom and responsibility. And she says one thing that really, uh, really um, stuck with me, which is everyone in an agency or a company or whatever business you're running should be able to tell you what the common goal of the company is. And I think that's a very valuable thing. And probably most agencies never take the time to stop and say, okay, who are we? What do we want to achieve? So probably I think this is this is a really good advice from her. Find out what your goal is and be absolutely sure that everyone from intern to CCO is able to tell you exactly the same thing because yeah. then you have a group of people that is marching in the same direction and that is willing to achieve the same thing. If you had your own agency, what would your goal be? I think I would... It's maybe obvious or too simple. I would like to do great work and I would like people to enjoy working there. I don't believe in too long hours. I don't believe in weekends. I think that especially as a creative, I want to be able to spend time outside and go to the theater and read a book and read a magazine or just observe people in a cafe. And I think that... In the past couple of years, lots of creatives have spent all their time closed in some dark room watching YouTube, and I don't think this turns us into better creatives. So I think that it's, we, we need time outside the agency to get inspiration, to travel, to visit art exhibitions, because this, is, this will help us do better work Yeah, and be also happier people. Yeah, which leads also to better work. I think there's... I don't know if I remember them correctly, but the first German creative agency, GGK, they had four rules. The first one is that the creative work is always the top priority. The second one was always needs to be creative who's at the top of the agency. And third one was to fire clients who want bad advertising. And fourth one was probably don't worry about the money. 
That's really interesting. And then I looked into the cultures of other creative agencies that have been around a long time. And I think their goals are probably quite similar because it's, it's a big difference if you want to earn a lot of money or if you want to make really great work. I think that having the work as the most important thing is also very freeing on a human level because it helps to not have egos come into place. So if we are all working and our common goal is to make the best work possible, then it's not about who had the idea or, you know, I am your boss, so I'm telling you what you have to do just because I'm your boss. We will all try to act in a way that will enable the best idea to happen. And I think this is actually the best thing that can happen to a creative department when everyone is pushing for the best work and not just for personal agendas or egos or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also just, uh, it doesn't sound as if money is not important at all. I think if you put out great work, then it leads to financial success also. And if you put out shitty work, it probably does not attract very good people and it also does not pay off in the end, right? Yes, I think it's a probably a choice that you have to do. I guess you can run a very uh, financially successful agency with medium work and that's probably a choice that you have to make so that you also have people that want to do that sort of work and you don't get frustrated you know it doesn't make any sense to hire super ambitious creatives and then make them do something that is not going to fulfill them you're just going to have frustrated creatives they're going to leave you'll need to find new ones hire them train them knowledge is lost on the way so i think it's really important for agencies to look inside, understand who am I? What do I want to achieve? Is it money? Okay, it's fine. No one's going to judge you. You know, it's a business. Right. But then act accordingly. Is it great creative? Perfect. Then you should probably um, work in a slightly different way. Mm. Yeah, sometimes uh, we were joking. I don't know with whom I was talking that it would be so much easier if we just didn't care about the ideas and just would be happy to do shitty work <laughs> because you could go home so much earlier so true you, I just, you just needed to work one hour a day probably i don't know yeah but then we probably wouldn't be doing this job exactly. it's, it's a it's a vicious circle yeah. yeah so do you think it is harder to come up with great ideas or is it harder to sell the great ideas to a client or make them come to life generally probably the two things are tied together I guess that a great idea is really great when it works perfectly for the client and the product and the situation that you're in. So understanding the business of your client, understanding what their current situation is, how they work, what is important to them is going to be incredibly helpful once you start coming up with ideas. And I try in the best cases to see the client as an ally I, I don't see that we are like against each other or I, I think that it's a sort of partnership. It's a cooperation. And I try to help them, um, trying also to understand where they stand and what they need. I think, for example, if you have a client who's struggling, it might not make much sense going there and showing them to print ideas for trying to win an award because it, it shows that you're not understanding what matters to them at this time. Yeah, and some people think that the feedback from clients is always bad because it's feedback. But I think a lot of times it really helps to make it better. And if you listen to the client, then 
makes it better. But probably the most important thing is that the whole agency, the whole organization supports great ideas and tries to make them come to life. So if there's, I don't know, if the account people are not in it or if somebody in the creative department is lazy, then it's really hard to challenge the client to do the work that is more brave, I guess. So. Yes, I, I think it definitely starts with the agency. I believe that what we do, especially nowadays with this very complex um, campaigns where you have millions of different assets and pictures and films and social media cutdowns, whatever, I, I think it's a team sport. I don't think this is, this is the time anymore for the lone creative star. If you don't have everyone on board internally at the agency and everyone willing to work for the same thing, I don't think you'll be able to succeed. So it needs to start with the agency. Everyone needs to be in love with the idea. Everyone needs to try to make it happen in his or her role. And then obviously you need to have a client with whom you have um, an honest relationship. I always try to be honest with clients and I hope they're honest with me um, For example, if I show you something and you hate it, tell me. You know, some clients uh, sometimes try not to give too direct feedback and then the agency maybe keeps working weeks and weeks and weeks on an idea that is already dead. So trying to have a, an honest conversation, I think, is um, helping both sides. Yeah, I just remember one funny situation when um, we had the new process. I don't know who came up with it, but... They wanted a so-called agile process for coming up with the concepts for campaigns. So one rule was that in the first presentation, the client wasn't allowed to give negative feedback. And so we presented through phone, I guess. And then there was silence on the other end. And then one of the clients started, yeah, well, thank you that you presented something <laughs> uh, yeah that's it <laughs> so, it didn't it, work out that well did it? No, it worked out really great because then after a couple of minutes they they didn't kill it right away they thought about it and then they realized where we were at and it, it wasn't the final presentation that was just like a review along the way mm -hmm. and I th I think I mean this process um I think they st stuck to this process for a month and then it was gone. But <laughs> uh, when I am working with somebody coming up with ideas, I try never to say anything negative. So if we would try to come up with ideas together and you, s you had an idea or a thought that I don't like, I just wouldn't pick it up. I would throw another thought at you. and mm -hmm. Because I think when, when you say something, yeah, I don't like this because, I said... Yes, okay, you basically told me you're smart. Congratulations, but does it help to uh, solve the problem? I don't know. It's a little bit like improv theater. You say something yeah. and try to build upon it. Yes, that's probably the best way of working together. That's something that I um, force myself to do. And then when you work with different people, and then especially also as a freelancer, then sometimes you think, oh, really, why do you have to tell me that you don't like it just talk about something else yeah so yeah let's talk a bit about Bertha Benz this is a really beautiful campaign that you did for Mercedes how did you stumble upon the story of Bertha probably 
it has something to do with the fact that I was just working on this one client, which actually is really helpful because it helps you to focus 100% on it. And it also helps you to dig into the history of the client. Usually in most agencies, you jump from one client to the other, which is also interesting because it gives you a little more variety. But in that case at Anthony, we're just working on one client exclusively. So you really dive into the Mercedes world. And the other factor was that, as I was saying, I don't have a background in automotive. I'm not German. I never heard of this Berta Benz lady before. So when I stumbled upon her story, I was like, this lady is amazing. And I didn't know about her. I guess that many other people don't know about their story. We should tell it. The thing is that Daimler, everyone knows about Berta Benz. Everyone respects her and cherishes her and everything. But outside, no one knew that what she had achieved. Isn't that interesting that they never told the story to a bigger audience? Actually, Or, they did. Oh, they did? Yes. So um, they did, I think, six months before our film. The American client did the same film. Ah. Oh. Yes. Uh, in the back of my head. With another agency. Yeah. And you can imagine how we reacted. We were already working on it. We already sold the idea to the client. I think we were almost in pre-production. And then one day I arrived at the agency and someone sends me the link to the story of Berta Benz, the first long distance drive. And we were shocked for a moment. And we had two options. Either you kill the thing or you keep going. And in the end, we decided, you know, this is a great story. It's a little bit like the man landing on the moon. Oh, It's yeah, a story right. that has been told a million times, but everyone tells it slightly differently. And if you compare the two films, they're totally different. So we decided to keep working on the project and the uh, client decided that this was the uh, right thing to do as well. So we kept on working. Was the Wikipedia article about Berta Benz there already or did that build after you told this story on the actually scale? most of the of, of the things about her were already available on the internet i also read a book about her i think in germany she is sort of well known there was also uh, a tv feature film about her yeah it was not too long before you did no. this commercial right and it was really good because we had lots of sources to understand the time um, because nowadays, if I tell you that this lady did the first long-distance drive in a car and it was from Mannheim to Pforzheim, you might not really grasp how big yeah. the impact was, right? So it was interesting to dive into the story, understand how was like how life was in 1888. Um, what, what does it mean when I am on the street and I see a lady on a car and she's driving past me? How did people react? So it was great that we had already some sources at our disposal to do this research. This film, I think, is a bit longer than four minutes, right? Yes. And I watched it again today, and to me it feels a lot shorter than many 30-second commercials. How did you achieve that this film feels so short we didn't start with a precise length in mind but i think what sebastian strasser the director and i always felt is we are gonna cut this in the right way so we tried to not be too much in love 
with what was shot, uh, but keep all the things that were essential to create the tension, to give the audience the feeling of what was going on, how were people reacting. So um, we tried to be a little strict with ourselves. Um, and I'm glad that you reacted like this. And um, we, you know, so many people say, oh, this long advertisement, no one looks at them because they're too long. And I'm so glad that this wasn't the case. So many people watched it until the end because we really conceived it as a short film. So the dramatic arc was there. And um, yeah. And how long was the first edit? I don't think it was much longer than that, okay. you know? Yeah. It's interesting the the scene when she comes out of the pharmacy and then she needs to fix two things at the car I guess. Yeah. Uh, I thought okay this is probably the way Hollywood tells it <laughs> or but then I found the these details also in the Wikipedia article. So yes. it's so based on facts. It's based on facts. Obviously we had to condense them chronologically. The hair journey was maybe 11 hours long and we condensed different events of the journey in these four minutes and made them happen all in the same space. But she really had to go to the pharmacy. She really had to buy fuel. The car really broke down. So yeah, there there is a little bit of... Um, storytelling magic in it trying mm -hmm. to fix it all together but it's all based on reality and she also invented a lot of things for yes. for cars in general right yes because thanks to her journey she was the first one doing a long distance journey with the car so she was actually the first one experiencing troubles with the brakes for okay. example and through her experience um, they were able to fix or improve some parts of the car so it was actually essential what she mm -hmm. did but As far as I read it, the um, the patents weren't registered under her name because as a woman at that time, you couldn't file a patent under your name. So it was under Carl's name. Is that right? This might be the case. I don't know, but it yeah. sounds correct. I mean, she was very involved with Carl's business right from the start. She also invested some of her own family money in her husband's invention. So... Um, I think she was way ahead of her time, mm. but it might be true that she wasn't able to uh, use her name on the patent. The films that are generally the productions that Anthony does, it looks pretty international, which I like. And it's something that's, in Germany, it sometimes is hard because clients say, yeah, but it has to look like Germany. I don't know if that's that actually makes sense to see it that way, but... Is it easier, or are you aiming for this international look, or is it just because it's an international client that you end up there in a way? I think we're aiming for it. We are obsessed with moving image. I, I, I love making films. It's really one of the things that I enjoy the most. And I think we also developed a way of creating production briefings, which are very specific and very clear. And obviously, we try to leave as much space as possible to the director or to the photographer in order that they can bring, um, obviously, their input to it and make it even better. But I think already at a production briefing stage, um, we have a very clear vision of what we want to achieve. Mm. And I heard that you also, which is not normal for agencies, pick all the people working on, a lot of people working on the production that usually... Uh, the production company or the directors are more involved with than the agency. 
it happens. We have opinions. Uh, we have very strong opinions on directors of photography, for example. Um, but we also look at the stylist. We look at the production designer. And obviously, it's a director's job to find the person that he wants or he or she wants to work with. Um, but we look at them and we discuss them. So the pre-production is a very intense time, where in the best case, um, we have daily back and forths with the director or the photographer, and we discuss all tiny details. I remember when I saw the, what was the um, other film that you did? Play by your rules, for example. I mm -hmm. saw that film and uh, me and the other people at Heimat who watched this together were really jealous because we thought, why do they still have such big production budgets? Do you really have these big budgets or is it just that you have found a way to handle the money better than other people? I think that Automotive probably still has bigger budget than most clients, but we don't always have huge budgets. And for example, Berta Benz didn't have a big production budget. I think what we try to do is we try to come up with ideas that are exciting for people to work on. And so um, they try to make it happen in every possible way. Yeah. I heard that for one of your productions, the best stylists in South Africa weren't available. So you moved the production somewhere else or postponed it. I never heard about this okay, story. Maybe that's just gossip <laughs> that's going around in people looking at it. But it's at, a fun story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what people talk in other agencies okay. <laughs> about your work. <laughs> Last detail about Bertha Benz. Did you ever think about shooting this film in German? Yes. That was actually um, how we wanted to do it. And in the end, it was just dependent on the casting. We were casting and we found this actress and most of the other actors didn't speak German, so we decided to shoot it in English. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Because right now I'm watching Narcos, and it's it's really annoying that you have to read subtitles all the time when they speak yeah. Spanish. But it's, yeah, especially for a story that feels so authentic. Or yeah, we'd have loved to do it. Um, I, I think it brings that extra level of authenticity, exactly like in Narcos. And then it was just between choosing the language and choosing the actor, we decided that uh, the actors were more important. We, yeah. we didn't have much time, so we, we didn't have the luxury of cast, uh, to cast people for three months until yeah. we found the perfect German actress. And so we decided to go for Also, I think German does not sound as beautiful as yeah, Italian or English when you just by the sound of it so when i see hollywood movies sometimes there's german people who are supposed to speak real german and then it's subtitled to make it more real mm -hmm. and you have really hard time what did he just say ah that was meant to be german okay <laughs> so it's just american actors reading german lines yeah. and it yeah. doesn't work so yeah how did your job change when you became a creative director Well, I think when you are still a copywriter or a creative, mostly it's about yourself, right? You are responsible for your own work. You challenge yourself. You want to produce great stuff, but it's mostly about you and maybe your team partner. And once you become a creative director, the horizon widens and suddenly you're responsible for many more things. You're responsible for more people. 
um, you're responsible for having a bigger picture about the work. So the whole thing widens, and I think it's a it's a difficult transition at the beginning. And most of us don't get any training in management. Probably this should change because I don't think that just by being a great creative you are automatically a great creative director and a great people manager. You have to learn a lot. You also have maybe to read about it and be interested in it. I also think there are great creatives who maybe should not be creative directors. And I think it's a little bit of a shame that in Germany the only way to progress is automatically to become a creative director. And I am um, like the British system more, where you can be a 50-year-old copywriter and earn as creative director, but not managing people. Mm. What I find interesting is when you become a leader, of course, it's something that's written in a management book, probably, or picked it up somewhere. You need people that follow you. Otherwise, it's no use that you're a leader. Yeah. I think that I read once this quote. I think it's by Margaret Thatcher. She said, being a leader is like being a lady. If you have to tell people that you are one, you aren't. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and I read it quite at the beginning, and I thought, wow, She's right, so I'll try to live by it. Obviously, I think you, you need to have a creative reputation when you're leading people, just because I think that when you're working with someone, they should believe that you will enable them to do the best work of their life, yeah. right? You don't want to work with a creative director um, and you don't believe that he or she is going to help you to do great work. I think that's, that's really the base of the relationship. Yeah. And what's the thing that annoyed you most before you became a creative director? And did you do that differently? or? I think that giving feedback is one of the most difficult things when you become a creative director. I mean, everyone can say, I don't like it. Well, that's a little bit too easy. I think that being articulate and trying to explain not why I don't like it, but why this is not the right answer to the brief at this time takes a little bit more energy, takes a little bit more time, takes also a little bit more practice. But um, it helps the relationship and it also annoys creatives less because I remember this was one of the things that I really um, despised when yeah. people just told me, well, I don't like it. Oh, it's just taste, you know. It's yeah. yeah, why? Yeah. yeah, because then, yeah, you ask yourself, how can I do it in a way that you like it or that it does work? Right. Yeah, so. but I think the transition can be tricky at the beginning. I remember one of the first meetings, I think we were pitching and at one point it was like, okay, what are we going to do? And six people just moved their heads towards me and looked at me and I thought, fuck, now it's me. I have to tell them what we're going to do. And that was the first time and I froze for a minute and then I said, okay, let's try it. I think especially at the beginning, you're probably going to question yourself a lot. So try to follow your gut and... With the time, you'll have experience to back it up. Yeah. Did you sometimes miss only being a copywriter in your job as a creative director? I do not particularly enjoy just being in meetings all day. That's my point, yeah. <laughs> Because I'm a creative person, so I like to create stuff. Um, I like to take care of the teams. I like also to take care of the agency and being involved in what happens in the agency. These are things that are really important to me. But I also still like to 
um, talk about films and talk about lines and talk about the work itself. So I always try to balance it out because in the past I noticed that I was either just talking to clients or doing some presentations and um, after a while this made me unhappy. So I try to balance it more now. Okay, and that works. That's good because yes. I had the feeling that when you have a lot of projects and enough teams, even if you don't really have a lot of time, it can sometimes work out really well. And then if you come up with concepts that you like, then you go home happy. But the worst times, your calendar fills itself because other people put meetings in there. And then you go home and you think, what did I do today? Yes. Just a whole day gone and I didn't do anything. Yes. And I remember in a time where I was mostly in meetings and if you were really lucky, you got the 6 a.m. flight as well to a presentation that lasts one hour and then you come back late in the evening. So that that's the real jackpot that you sometimes get. But during a really, yeah, tough time, the happiest working day for me was when I was helping out on a pitch coming up with ideas just for two hours on my own. That's from a period of months. I thought, okay, this is the perfect, th that was the best day. So probably something is wrong with how my job is organized. So. I think with time, you know about yourself, you, you get to know yourself better, right? So you understand what is important to you to be fulfilled in your job. And I think if you are able to take control of your day-to-day -day life, obviously there will always be other people putting meeting in your calendars, but being becoming more active and deciding, okay, I need one hour a day where I'm alone in a room and I'm allowed to think. This is something that is really important for me. Or just talk to the creatives and spend some time together. I identify these things that are really relevant to me and I make them a priority now. Mm. Does it work for you that you work on the same brief, come up with ideas as well on the same brief that you that you gave to, to the teams? I try to avoid that. It seems unfair somehow. Yeah. I see that my job is to help them do the best ideas that they can. And I am sort of the emergency plan. If nothing is working and we have an emergency, then I should be able to sort of fill the gap but I try to use my time to make their ideas better and not push my own yeah yeah that makes sense so you also founded the Berlin chapter of she says yes how did that happen and what is that <laughs> <laughs> so um, she says is a I'll, I'll tell you like the the Instagram bio or what you read on the website, she says, is an award-winning global network that uh, supports women in the creative business thanks um, to free networking events and mentorships. How this happened is it was 2015 and I met a girl who just moved from Berlin uh, to Berlin from New York. And she wanted to set up, she says, in Berlin, because it's a, it's a global network, but each city has its own chapter, right? So we had lunch, and she was telling me all about it. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. It's just, you know, you create these free events, and people come, and every time there is a topic, and people talk about it, and then there is exchange and networking, and it sounded amazing. 
And then she moved back to New York. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so this is not going to happen. Then maybe I should just make it happen. And that's how it started. And now it's been five years. Now wow. I'm, yes. It wasn't as trendy, the whole, you know, women thing when we started and the events were also much smaller. Now I see that they're resonating much more. So now I'm running this together with Jenny, um, who has helped make it grow even more. And it's been fantastic. We've been meeting so many interesting women. So it works like this. It's, it's all for free, you know? So the events are for free and the companies who decide to host us do it just because they want to give us the space. And we pick a topic, be it something like, I don't know, personal branding or how to negotiate your salary better, whatever we think might be relevant. And then we invite women who have experience on the topic and then it's either a panel discussion or each one of them gives a, a short presentation and then people can ask questions. And it's great because it's not that sort of panel discussion where people are there to show how cool they are or how successful they are. It's really about, hey, this is my experience. This is what worked well for me. I hope this advice is gonna help you. And then you have this very, sometimes very, very long Q&As yeah. where people are just asking questions because what I noticed in my own career is that as a woman, you might not have that many role models so these kind of meetings are essential to just exchange experiences and ask, hey, I'm in this situation, how would you do that? Or maybe you have a similar story to me, what can I learn from your story? This is uh, a little bit the sense. It's interesting because usually Q&As are super short <laughs> after <laughs> somebody gave a presentation and there's two questions and that's it. Or Well, you've sometime. never been to a networking event with 60 women. <laughs> that's kind of my next question. Is it only for women or can I come to one of these events as well? Of course you can come. Sometimes we also have male speakers. The main focus, we, we talk about topics that are meant for women. So usually they're more interesting to women, but lots of men come. Uh, sometimes they feel a little bit uneasy. It's almost sweet to observe them when they come and it's just women and they look around and they feel a little, a little bit like the lost puppy. Um, but then... I think it's really interesting for them because for once the perspective is totally reversed and they have the experience yes. to see um, what women think and how women perceive lots of things. So it's it's quite interesting. You are invited to our next event. Thanks. I, I which will is, come. Which is unfortunately uh, ah. postponed because of Corona. Okay. Um, but yeah. yeah, but usually a lot of times it's the other way around that woman is the only female in the room yes and there's a lot of guys around and i remember when i saw one of your events on facebook or the last one was it was it the one at bbdo yes and i saw it i thought oh wow this is interesting i want to check this out and then i wasn't sure if it is only for women and then i thought ah oh, maybe maybe it's rude if i say accept because that's not meant for me and i I get it. It's not. I don't feel excluded. Mm -hmm. I understand that probably, and or obviously, it is because there's other organizations like that. For example, what is it? Wine, women, design. You know that. Uh, ladies, wine, and design. Ladies, wine. Yeah, yeah. that's so. I think they have meetings that are just meant for for women. Mm -hmm. And um, I talked to Francisca, one of the organizers, uh, recently, and. 
I get it. If you're always in male company and you want to talk about problems that women specifically have in the ad world or in the business world, sometimes probably it's a good idea to just have no guys around. But of course, then there's guys who say, yeah, but you're excluding us. That's not the case, right? It's, I mean, sometimes it's probably necessary to talk in a smaller group, maybe just females, and then it's nice. And I, mm. thanks for the invite. I will check out the next event to have it open for yeah. everybody. Now, I think it's, it's always been open for everybody. Yeah. Um, for me, it's more interesting to make it inclusive, Also because, I mean, I want to change things, right? And I think we won't be able to change things if this is an issue that is just relevant for women. I want this to be an issue to be relevant for men as well. So I like to have as many male allies as possible. So everyone is welcome. Yeah, I had a female copywriting partner for, <clears throat> for a while. And When I knew that she was going to join the agency, I thought, oh, this is really cool because now I have the female perspective in the room, which will make the ideas a lot more powerful, I thought. And yeah, our commercials are probably also car commercials, especially still made for men more than for women or is it? I think agencies in general still have a very long way to go. I look at clients And especially bigger clients, bigger companies, they have established policies already a while ago that helped them uh, achieve a better balance between men and women in management positions, for example. And I see that agencies are starting now. They probably don't have strict policies. They're trying to uh, understand how, how to do it. I think definitely it's a problem if you create a campaign And I saw this happening once. There was this film, and from the account team to the creatives, there was not a single woman involved. So from the moment this was briefed to the woman this uh, to the moment this got produced and then aired, there hasn't been a woman giving feedback on it, which I think is definitely not the way to go. Mm. So this is something that I guess every agency should try to address immediately in their process uh, by hiring more women, but also to have more women in a position of making decision. This is why I think that having more women as a creative director is essential, because in the end, as a creative director, you're the one deciding which idea is going to be presented. And so you are the one sort of picking what is being made and what is being produced and if it's just guys doing it you are missing half of the story yeah and it's really hard for me as a guy i mean i don't walk around being a woman so i'm just not aware of the situations or the problems that, yes. that you are facing so. i was once in a meeting obviously throughout my career it happened very very often that i was always the only woman in the room And at the beginning, I thought, oh, my God, this is so cool. I'm the only woman. And after a while, I thought, oh, my God, this is horrible. I'm okay. the only woman. I have to do something against it. Because you have this conversation. I remember we were in this meeting, and it was an internal agency meeting, and everyone was saying, we just had launched a campaign, and everyone was saying... Um, The media buying was not good. I never saw it. What are all our beautiful billboards and print ads, uh, they have absolutely no visibility. And they were complaining about it for 10 minutes. And then I said, guys, 
I'm seeing them the whole time. <laughs> it's just because maybe you don't read Grazia because I read it oh, and right, it's yes. full of it. So, you know, if I hadn't been in the room, all these people would have been sure that the campaign had absolutely no visibility. The point was they just weren't the target group. Yes. And but this is a really small example, but it, you, can, you can use it also on a bigger scale on why it's important to have people from different backgrounds in a room just because the perspective is richer. Yeah. When I see an ad that is meant for men and women equally, is it still, there's probably a good chance that it's still more made for men, right? I guess it depends what product we're talking mm. I never thought about that because um, I just, talking to Francisca, w got aware that there's obviously the need for women to organize like you are doing with She Says. And then there's, what's the other one? Oh, you women? Yes. And They're also great. Because working in ad agencies, there's a lot of female creatives and there's a lot of female art directors. I think there's, I know female copywriters but there's not very much female creative directors no that's I what i realized the percentage now is sort of 11 percent wow. the thing is at entry level it's very balanced you might have yeah. 50 50 and then the, the more higher up you go and then the women disappear mm -hmm. why is that there are multiple factors uh, for once you tend to so the people who are let's say in power now are mostly men And you, tr you tend to hire and promote people that are similar to you. Mm. So men, it's proven, tend to promote more men. Uh, so there is this sort of bias. The other thing is uh, probably the agencies have been designed by men for men. So it's a sort of place where men thrive more than women. And that's why we need to have more women involved so that they might adjust the agency world and make it also more um, inclusive of the wishes of women. Mm. You had one event that was about negotiating, right? Yes. So did you ever have the feeling that it's harder for you to negotiate your salary because you are a woman? No, I. what I noticed is when I had creatives negotiating their salary with me, I definitely noticed that guys were way more straightforward and also way more convinced of their own value compared to women. This is why very often um, men end up um, having more money. It's a, it's a very, very complicated topic. Um, I think it's also up to each agency to have a look at their own salaries and see if there is this sort of discrepancy and how they can address it. Um, but I think that definitely learning a couple of tricks on how to negotiate. There is this wonderful uh, chat bot with Cindy Gallup that trains you on how to ask for a raise. She says things like, um, ask for the highest number that you can say out loud without starting to laugh. <laughs> that sort of things. And that's fantastic advice. Nice. Yeah. What is the, of all these events that you organized, what was the most important learning that you took away from from it i love the energy and i see that i mean it's not events where we're sitting there and we're complaining and we're saying oh we don't like how things are i really see that there is a lot of energy and 
There are so many wonderful, interesting women. What I also tend to do is I always tend to invite women that I'm curious about and I want to get to know them and I want to learn about their story. And it's been um, very enriching to just chat with all of them and hear about their own stories. Yeah. I think Germany is more behind compared to the US, for example, when it comes to having women in leadership positions because when you look at american agencies i have the feeling that nowadays there's almost more women in charge than men yes i think germany you might have this image of a very progressive country because of angela merkel because mm -hmm. she is your Uh, say international face but I think when we look at companies and when we look at agencies in the specific because as I was saying I think companies are actually a step a step ahead than most agencies um, I mean the agency landscape is dominated by men they are the ones running the agencies they are the ones making the decisions they are the ones shaping our industry mm. are women more because I heard that that's why I'm asking this question Is it true that women are more competitive towards each other than, than men? I don't think so. Uh, I think this applies to what I was saying before. At the beginning of my career, when I was the only woman in a room, I thought, you know, I was the chosen one because there is just one, right. one spot for one of us. And this automatically leads you to consider any other woman as an enemy because, you know, there's just one spot And this is something that we have to stop immediately because this is A, bullshit, B, it's helping to perpetuate this sort of vicious circle which we actually have to stop. So right now, when I'm the only woman in a room, I see that it's my duty to open the table and bring more women in the room. First of all, because I don't want to be the only woman in the room. I don't want to be the token woman. And I think there's something not right, quite not right going on when this happens. How is it to be at the client as a woman in a leadership position in an agency? Are clients used to that or are they also still not used to talking to female creative directors, for example? I personally never experienced, I think, a disadvantage of it because of it. So for now, I guess it all depends on who the client is. Yeah, and like you said, probably because clients are more what's the right word but the balance on the client side is better than on the agency side yeah. so if you look at mercedes right now i mean the boss client she is a young woman yeah the last year at heimat i worked for a client where all the people from client side were women i guess there were some guys but it was 80 percent women so yeah. i have two more questions What was your most favorite client so far? Brand or human, yeah, <laughs> no, human level? Like brand to work for or maybe mm. if it's just a person that you No, I think it's a tie. Really. It's a tie. Mercedes is amazing. I enjoy working with them. They are fantastic on a human level. They're really nice people. We have fantastic conversations. And uh, the brand is iconic and it's great to work for such a brand. But I also really enjoyed working on Sony Bravia just because, you know, if you're an advertising nerd, just being able to write the next Bravia chapter is amazing and you feel 
so much responsibility because you know that you're never going to top Bravia balls, but still you, you want to do your best. And that was also a really good time. I think it's interesting because you are a copywriter and I know that not just writing headlines and concepts, but Sony is a pretty visual brand, right? Indeed. How is that as a copywriter to work for Sony? Very refreshing. Um, you, you have to come up with a visual concept because that's, that's how their also advertising heritage works. So it was a different approach and it was incredibly challenging but also interesting on a production level because it was I've, it definitely it was one of the most interesting productions I had ever the pleasure to work on. They do everything for real, right? Yes, yes. That's I, why I'm saying it's challenging. Yeah. Last question. What was the biggest disaster on a project that you ever experienced? Oof. So once I went to a presentation and it was meant to be, um, it, was an, it was an offline, right, with the client. And it was a very funny film, or we thought at least that it was, the, the whole point was that it was a really, really fun campaign. And we show, and we are in love with the edit and we show it to the client and then there's like silence after that. And we look at them and say, okay, so what do you think? Well, that's not funny. And I was like, okay. Or maybe, and I don't know if this is a better story you can pick. Once we were having a presentation with a client and the client, uh, they came from an Asian country and all our presentation was relying on butterflies. Mm -hmm. And it was all about butterflies. And you had butterflies everywhere. And I showed them uh, mood films with butterfly. And I was using butterfly migration footage with millions of butterflies. And I saw that they weren't reacting well. But I kept on going. And I was telling them, because your product is like the butterfly in beauty and blah, blah, blah. And talking 30 minutes about butterflies. And in the end, they look at me and say, in our culture, <laughs> butterflies are ugly. They're like cockroaches. Really? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was very embarrassing. They let you talk about this for half an hour? Yes, I mean, they were being polite. They wow. didn't want to stop me. <laughs> But it's like, imagine I've been showing them for yeah. 30 minutes cockroaches. footage of cockroaches. <laughs> oh, fuck. But what happened then with the, the first story you told? So it wasn't funny to them. Yes. And what happened then? I mean, you, you were already... We in went offline. back into the edit and we kept editing. But in the end they laughed or? Yes, in the end they okay. laughed. So they, because they knew the, the joke before, but they just thought the way you told it yes. didn't work. Okay. Yes. So was it German client? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, humor, it's, it's tricky. But did you, did you like the final result better than your first edit then? I don't know. I think we might have lost something on the way. Some, sometimes you can lose yourself in yeah. the edit and you, you don't know anymore it. where did you start. Yeah. I think we were still happy with the result, but I believe also the first version was funny, actually. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Alice. Thank you. It was very interesting. Danke.